This is Aliens and Artists, part three of our conversation with Christina Engelhart. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Christina is a multimedia artist. For years, she and famed Italian director Federico Fellini experienced contact with non-human entities. It dramatically impacted their lives. In this episode, she recounts a near-death experience and other powerful components of this long-term relationship. Have I left anything out? (laughs) Well, I'd like to ask about this dichotomy between the practical and the ethereal, between the prosaic and the exotic. By that, I mean specifically about what these non-human entities can and cannot do. For instance, in your case, they move objects. They instantly manifested $1,200 in a shoebox so that you can travel where they wish for you to go. They track you in real time, anywhere in the world. They can make a phone ring on a sidewalk in Manhattan to deliver a message to you. You observed levitation of objects. So on one hand, the suite of talents they have seems supernatural. Yes. Until we consider what they can't do. They can't get a film funded. They sanction projects but are unable to bring them to fruition without us, in this case without you or Fellini. They must put it in human hands. They then issue these demands, imperatives. They make artists and experiencers feel as though we're pregnant with something that we can't seem to give birth to, but must. It's our calling. I wonder if you could speak to this bizarre dichotomy. Why are they able to do so much, but also so little? They can transcend time and space, but they can't bring an earthly project to completion. What do you feel about that? Is it frustrating? Yes. All right. So um, I think that they tap into, remember, if, if you've seen it through scientific cell, um, where they have uh, certain cameras that can see auras of people. So, and, and that, that the heart chakra sends out a wave the mind, the brain sends out sort of electronics uh, vibration. So I think that unseen, because we don't see the, they've, you've seen this, what I'm talking about, where they'll see someone's heart and they'll see like the energetic wave come out. And, and it's some camera that's sensitive to this. So I, I think that that is one way that they can tap into. If I use the word light, if I use like a light frequency, because that's what is measured from our heart. That is what's measured from our mind. And then literally the mind in itself, this, those light synapses. So that light that is created from nothing, that spark, that I believe that is how they tap into and that is how they get into a mind or into a spirit or into the heart energy of someone. Because that is the closest to their physicality if they're the kind of energies that I've worked with. Now, actual aliens and the physical being, um, that's a whole nother story. But the ones that I'm working with, which are, I believe, are interdimensional, interdimensional, uh, um, in another dimension, all in its own, that can read and pick up and connect to this light source that emanates from us biologically. The minute our heart does not have that frequency, that, that energetic pull, I think that's when we have 
our hearts doesn't stop. I mean, these are measurements that scientists have actually proven, not just heat sensors of where, you know, where there's heat in the body and such. So in that, I think what uh, the, the energies that I've worked with have t are tapping into that light, are tapping into that. Because if you think of light and, and that a, a star or a planet either a planet or a moon reflects light, a sun radiates light, and that the light particles that are all around this world, even when you look at the aurora borealis, you know, that, that filter that captures, that, that prisms the light frequency, you know, I think those are all con con almost like conduits, like little particles of receptivity. You know, like if you are using a photograph, you need a certain a silver salts that make a, a reflective on a photograph to actually make a picture. That the same the same um, particles from a photograph to the same particles of sound. So they, I think that's where they work with, and I think that that's how they enter a, a person. And of course, I think they would rather choose somebody who is open to it because if you go to a person who cannot, you know, has no imagination to deal with it, they won't know what to do with that information. You know, if you know the story of Saul who was taken by Jesus and then he saw the light and then transformed to love Jesus instead of trying to kill him or being anti-Christian that he then became, you know, so that was a moment where a light awakened him. And so there is that form of this unseen light that appears from nowhere that forms. So that, that I'm just going to push put that on the back burner because that's one way of light particles, energy particles that is collected, and that is part of how uh, a spirit being uses that as a connection, almost as if a, uh, a telephonic communications using the particles. And hello, what is wireless, our own, our own inventions of wireless telephone and our own uniqueness of wireless, there's a perfect example how these energies can work. Because if we can create something wireless, we just, in, we just tapped onto something that's already out there. Remember humans, they discover. Our inventions are really discoveries. We did not discover light. We did not, I'm sorry, we did not invent light. We did not invent mathematics. We discovered it. It was already there. We just tapped into it. So we're still, oh my God, wait till the, the next 20, 30 years where we're going to go with magnetic energies. You know, we're just, we're still at the dawning of our own scientific. Um, and the more we utilize it, we're, that's where we're playing with God. When we can utilize the unseen power, that's really when we play God. And I think when we tap into subconsciousness or unconsciousness, that's where we're tapping into the God energy. And that's where the influence is. So why the, uh, an energy cannot produce the movie but can influence the players, it's the same thing, you know, if you want to use uh, somewhat of religion, you know, God shows up in in the being of certain people to influence them to do great things um, where they say, if God actually, if we saw God, it would be too austere. We'd be, you know, we'd be overwhelmed by its possibility as an example. That's how religious religion um, 
dictates that ability. If you actually saw the Akashic records, you could make sense of things far more than um, just, you know, guessing or passing down a story that what humans used to do. Before we wrote books or drew pictures, we would pass down word of mouth things. So where we take an intuitive person or an awakened person or an or someone who is in the awakening. It is through trials and tribulations. It is where, you know, that you sometimes have to go through your own fear to be compelled to reach elsewhere. And in that elsewhere of trying to reach for some higher ground, we start seeing our own little miracles of life, you know, what people call coincident or non-coincidental. So I think that is where the energies that are trying to have us as a being, as a humans, that some of us are given the responsibility. It is a responsibility to talk about these things because we're going to be the first people who will be said, oh, that's not true, that's impossible, that's not, you know, that's not in the three-dimensional realm. Well, then how do you explain wireless? How do you explain microwave, macrowave, and so forth? So magnetic energy, um, just like uh, MRI, magnetics can create imagery. So actually, some of the great scientific evaluations we've done are tapping into this great uh, mystery that is going to be soon natural science. And so I think that even these voices, these these energies that are about, they're they're not inventing anything. They're also part of discovery. So that's what's really beautiful because we're in discovery of science and math and art and and visions. And so are they, and they're trying to discover how to reach our realm because for some reason, the planet earth is so unique in its realm. We're an emotional planet. We um, we're driven by art. I bet you there are planets, planetary systems and energy systems that they're so telepathic that they don't need to draw art or do art or, or make a film. They all already, they got it. And it's the people who get it that have to turn around to the to the people who don't get it and create drawings and arts to inspire. So I think there's where we're getting inspiration. And in Latin, inspire is to to respire, you know, is to breathe in, is to take the oxygen out in the realm and bring it into our lungs that actually t- feeds our own body. You know, so it's there's all of that makes sense. To me, that's the God energy, the spirit energy. And the esoteric energy is, is right there. It's just that it doesn't show up for everyone. And for the great artists that need to tell their story, often they're channeled, often they're, they're, they're reached out. And it might take a whole lifetime or another lifetime for it to be more and more accessible. You know, I keep hearing that the the um, the government the pentagon has so much proof and evidence that spaceships and alien ships and all that and why they don't want us to tell us because then then other faiths and beliefs go right out the door window and and why and why not i think um you know if i if i was a government and i knew there were aliens i would tell people because they would say hey listen <laughs> we got to team up as a human species we're not alone in this world so I hope this is answering your question that it is 
and influence. And it is used energy because that's what life is. So you feel, for instance, if they were to just fund your film, that it would remove the obstacles that contribute to your evolution, your development as a human being? Their influence is helpful, but them simply doing things for us might undermine our growth? I think if you hand the answers to someone, they'll never learn what the questions are. Um, and remember, um, the technology, even just from the 80s to today, and what's going to be in the next five to 10 years, just on scientific invention, we're going to start getting more and more um, interested in these phenomena because we're really getting, I mean, for, for all of these scientific advancements to happen, somebody is getting a download. I mean, Christopher Nolan as a director, when he did Interception, um, for example, and, and, and other projects, I think there are directors who, who like that story of the uh, impossible becoming possible, the unknown becoming know, knowable. They are getting tapped into. They are getting tapped into. My personal story, I think I couldn't get my film off the ground until I spoke with you. Who knows? There might be somebody who listens to this who'll tell somebody else who will then say, "Oh, what's that book she that girl wrote? Uh, mm -hmm. Towards the Moon with Fellini." Okay, let's get that book, Towards the Moon with Fellini, and and gets passed on. I mean, it could still happen. What is what does it mean if it happens now or next year from now? Right? This pandemic, you know, has to is also part of the human consciousness going into a realm. I truly think that this pandemic um, was also uh, derived from for some reason not not for I don't think for a good reason at all but you know that goes to also show you and tell you what is good and what is not good what is right what is wrong and all these things are in 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 measurement you know some people say well 5g is going to be for example the next greatest invention but oh but it could give brain damage or it could you know it could keep people's energies it could throw off our our own mechanism, our own aura of energy could be bombarded by things and not be good for us. You know what I'm saying is that what we think is good, airplanes are great, but then they give off pollution or this is great, but it gives off this. So um, I'm hoping that in its own time, and I keep asking for help from wherever they are, you know, bring me the people, bring me the connections, bring me the inspiration, because it is definitely a group organ, you know, I, no matter, even the story is told by the, the uh, opinions of other people. Everything I've gone through is through the opinions and in the connections of other people. So it's not a, a lone production that I need to do. It is a, a cumulative findings. It's a, it's a, it's that colorful connection that once I was part of. So much of it is anchored in you and Fellini. I was struck by sadness reading in the book that you and he never became lovers because there was clearly such a great love between you i not to override what you're saying i'm so glad i wasn't <laughs> why is that it was so intuitive because the love was there it just didn't need to be sexual the love was there federico loved me and i loved him like deeper than any romance because when I went to Rome and I would sit in front of Giulietta Massina, his wife, 
she turned to me and looked me straight in the eyes. She goes, are you sleeping with my husband? Are you having sex with my husband? And I could look at her honestly and say, no, I'm not. And he could look at her and say, I keep Christina with me everywhere. I was like a token. I'm not having sex with Christina. And he could say it honestly. Because imagine if I'd have to lie for that or say that and hurt her. And then my own husband, are you you having sex with Federico? No, I'm not. I swear. I swear to God. Oh, I was so glad that we hadn't. And he too, because it didn't make us closer. The physicality didn't have to be closer. We held hands. We hugged. We embraced. We did everything but that conception of sex, which actually... Now that I understood it, I'm so glad they said no, because it actually made our relationship better. I didn't get to be one of his many colorful girlfriends. I got to be like nobody else. And that, I'm so glad. Um, because look, Andrea, Andrea resented having, having to be physical with me. He, and he made me feel terrible about it. Like, so bizarre. Because he, he felt that, you know, I'm being told to do this. I wouldn't, you know, have anything to do with you. And when you read his book, he doesn't speak very highly of me. So strange. Yeah, it was, but, you know, we've, we're on good terms. It was just, um, it was an uncomfortable situation for the two of us. I am glad that I did not have, was not physical because then he would have been that for me. And he is so much more by not. Because let me tell you, Julieta Messina is so beloved. She is so magical. To look her in the eyes and hurt her, offend her, or lie to her, that would not feel good. That's a beautiful perspective on it. At the same time, Fellini was, as you put it, I believe, a known Lothario. It's an interesting mix of paradox. I totally get the merit, the larger spiritual frame which you view this through, and the power of you and Fellini being magnified by not sleeping together. At the same time, he slept with all these other women. His wife dealt with that. But then Andrea resented having to be your lover, this strange conglomeration of left turns. I think that, I think that I, for some reason, I used to think, why are these voices doing this? Why is you, you know, it felt like they were making things more complicated, but maybe that's where they were coming from. They were coming from a non-emotional um, idea of things. They that were never, see, if, if, if they were never born or died, they were never in the physical. They never learned to give birth or have, or, or have sex. Or it was sort of like uh, they put us through things to kind of observe. Oh, and by the way, when Andre and I were together, we felt like we were being watched because they kept calling me afterwards, this, that, and the other thing. I felt like, oh my God, how invasive to feel like you're being watched by something that right? you can't. It had a creepy feel to it. There's a thread of creepy stuff which runs through this entire saga, which is not to diminish the profound insights and life-changing events contained, but while recognizing that, whether it's taking lovers because these entities say to, then feeling you're being watched by them during lovemaking, or previous events where you felt you were held down in a state of paralysis, the word invasive is spot on. So my question is twofold. One, are these beings ethical? Right. And two, what does it mean to be ethical 
if you're a non-human entity engaging humans? You, you've definitely hit the, the nail on the head because ethics are really the definitions we give things. You know, uh, there, were, there, were, there were societies that believed in doing certain rituals that we would ethically say, oh my God, those were terrible humans. But I'm sorry, we, we, if we have Neanderthal in us, what the Neanderthals did and the Cro-Magnums and so forth, I mean, we were animals. And, um, and ego, I think, you know, humans took ego into their spirit and then started deciphering what's right and wrong. Um, what is ethical exactly? So I don't think that uh, where you, the energies of where you come from, are even, even curious about that. I, I do think they want a message out. And I think that they go about it because they are outside of time. I know that they've proven to me that they can see weeks and months and years ahead. And I think that's why they picked me, besides being open, is because they knew one day I would tell my story. I wouldn't just forget about it. Um, and I knew that I had, this was, if I, I've written other books, but this was the one I had to do. This is the one I had to do because uh, I showed up. I said I'd do it and I did it. And where it goes from there, but ethics, what is ethical? I mean, humans, we are such, contra we contradict ourselves continuously. Look, you know, we, we have a master, which we call our a spiritual master, Jesus Christ. And then we have to hang him on a cross. I mean, what's ethical about that? You know what I'm saying? Why do, why do we humans do where are we do our own undoing? Yeah. So, uh, so I another another form of life energy that comes in as as the great observer. If you know, they make a few crazy things happen. You know, I I'm still we're still dealing with our own ethics. I you know I can't even imagine something else knowing what that is. Fascinating. Let me extend that query to include them telling you don't eat meat, don't use drugs. These are themes which appear again and again in contact. So on one hand, we're asking, are these beings ethical? Well, that's complex. However, they demonstrate strong preferences when it comes to some human choices. Don't eat meat, don't use drugs, emphatic quasi-ethical directives. Are you still a vegetarian? And whether yes or no, why? Well, my household is vegetarian. Um, but I have eaten meat on occasion. When I do eat animal, I try to think like an American Indian did, where then they eat the chicken. I thank the chicken. I thank the chicken for or the whatever small piece of meats that I have eaten. And I try to use it that, that I thank this animal that, and this is going to sound strange, but this is the reasoning I have for using meat on occasion rarity. But I thank that man because that cow, that chicken would never accomplish the things that I can do. And by it now entering my body, that chicken, if I do something great and kind and good, that the vibration of that chicken has risen in its, remember, it could have done nothing other than being a chicken, but by entering me and I do something kind or good, and it's giving me the, a certain protein that I believe that I need or any human would need, 
if I do something great, the chicken's energy, the cow's energy has been risen because that's the only way a cow can do something artistic is when it nurtures the body. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of like, it's sort of like the, mm. the paint and the canvas. It's the paint mm. and it could never get on the canvas without the person who is digesting it. Now that's, I'm not saying that's what anyone should go by or faith, but that's what I've implied. And then I, I bless this animal. I say that I hope that if I'm going to eat this animal, I hope I do something good today, that its life did not go in vain. And that's the most important, that its life did not go in vain, that if I do something kind, I will think all day that I eat this chicken and that I'm going to bless this chicken. And thank this chicken for that. It's not a random thing. I, I do believe as the American Indians did, that's how they treated their animal production, their animal when they needed an animal. It was, they blessed the Buffalo. They used every part of the Buffalo. Nothing was just a sport. They didn't hunt for sport. They hunt for need. And um, we use animals. We, we've gone overboard. And, and also I do believe that, the um, agricultural world of using animals is destroying our planet. The pollution, the the grazing, the palm oil. I mean, I think we are doing a lot of damage. We could, the, the foods of the future probably will be in um, indoor growing, uh, what do you call it? When you grow things in water, um, the new way of- Hydroponics. Hydroponics. You know, I think that's that's going to be very, very helpful. Um, because, by the way, when we start using alternative en energies, more green energies like solar or wind, we need acres and acres of land to have these solar winds and panels, which is fine, but that's taking away from what we would grow on. But if we grow it hydro hydroponically, you know, we could actually do a lot of good in this world. If we, if we did limit our meat intake, if we, if we all didn't eat meat three times a day, if we we could really make, I mean, just think of most animals that are killed in, in the meat packing industries goes to waste. doesn't even make it to the table. It's not purchased at a certain time. So the animal is just wasted and that affects me. So, and I think that affects any, anything looking down on this planet, but the amount of suffering that is done doesn't have to, but that's me because um, I'm vegetarian in many ways, but you know, if I'm, when I go to work and they serve us lunch, whatever they put in front of me, I bless it and thank it and I eat it because then I, so <laughs> the food for the day. Um, and maybe one day I'll change that maybe, but other than that, there's no other reason why I need to eat meat. We, we, we make wonderful dishes without meat. The drugs, drugs alter our consciousness, make us make poor choices. But yet there are drugs like medicine drugs that are helpful. I think that they refer to drugs as mind-altering drugs that are, and yet, look, Castaneda, all the, you know, metaphysical, you know, hallucinogenic drugs, the uh, ayahuasca and the peyote and the psychedelic mushrooms, you know, those are uh, drugs, those are um, plants that have very powerful meaning. If anything, they've actually opened up the mind of people to see differently. So, you know, those are natural drugs which are used for almost enlightenment versus drugs like cocaine, for example, which just keep you hooked on something that really don't make you smarter or better. As an example. So this idea 
Some have proffered that Castaneda was behind all of this, that he was punking you and Fellini and all the others throughout this experience, trolling you. Were you not standing there with Fellini and his entourage when Castaneda reacted to this whole phenomenon of the voices and the calls? What was his affect? How did he respond in that moment? Didn't he flee from the room? Did that read like the behavior of someone who (laughs) spent four or five years elaborately manipulating the lives of five or six people across continents? It seems patently absurd. Can you describe being there with him in that moment? Well, I, it, it made me wonder if there was not, that was like the first moment I thought, is he a bit of a fraud? Because remember, I had read all his books. I thought he was pretty magical. And I thought, well, then he, I thought this was Don Juan, Don Gennaro. It wasn't Carlos who was making the voices, I thought, because if you read the books, the real magicians, the real shamans, are Don Juan and Don Gennaro, who crossed over. They already, when you get to the later parts of his books, Don Juan and Don Gennaro were already in the non-physical realm. They, yeah. they didn't die, they just transcended. So that's who I thought this was, Don Juan. Um, because that's where the magic of his book were. books were, that there was this other realm that you could tap into and that could tap into you. So for a long time, I still thought it was. But I thought, you know, Carlos... You know, he has all these women around him. He's a manipulative, he's a cultish. Um, and yet he took great, because um, he studied the uh, Toltecs and the Aztecs, and he studied this, the, the shamanism of these people. And it was quite, quite fascinating. Um, and, they, you know, to this day, there are people of that shamanistic realm who have great magic, if you want to call it that. But I... At first, I thought, oh, my God, when he left the room never to be heard and he was devastated, I thought, he's not behind this. Oh, my God, we are really dealing with something so unusual. It was for sure Federico. Federico thought for the longest time, and so did I, that it was Carlos, not so much him, but Don Juan, that something was opened. And that when we told him that there was something um, real happening, really esoteric. I think he was terrified because he had played with us. He had played with Federico, making wild goose chases in the desert, mm. kind of show him, look how, you know, look what I can make you do. You know, ha, 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 I got you to go here, there, and everywhere, leaving these little notes. And um, it's as a great manipulator. And when he realized, oh, I had nothing to do with this, then he might have felt that he was playing with his own magic. It backfired on him. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you play with the you play with the candle so long, and you leave dabbles of it, and now that candle started a huge forest fire, and you had nothing to do with it. That speaks to the old adage: if you look at this, it looks back at you. You already had been feeling this strange, intimate connection in real time with these intelligences. They could find you, for instance, through the switchboard of that hotel. So, Castaneda being perhaps cavalier in the way he had toyed with modes of magic and art, and then it shows up at his doorstep. That accounts for how he reacted, fleeing instantly, never to be seen again. As to your role, is it true to say you never seemed to have a moment of great doubt? Maybe it's just not in the book. 
You say maybe the intelligence knew you wouldn't lose your mind. However, even some esoteric practitioners, mystics, most of us have a moment of feeling it's all too much. The anomalous can be fatiguing. We need to raise our kids, hold down a job. It can be hard to remain loyal to the mystery, the enigma of the anomalous, and also function day to day in the ant heap <laughs> of society. Did you have a crisis where you threw your hands up in the air and said, I can't do this anymore? Um, here is one part I didn't mention in my little uh, speaking. So we, um, let's go back in time. Let's go now to 1989. So after the wedding, the last phone call, of course, Federico and I are still very close on a daily basis. You know, our little esoteric readings, all our projects and films. He was starting his next project. Um, it could have even been after, could have been 1990. Um, because in 1989, he started the, the voice of the moon. And that was his way. If you can see his film, La Voce de la Luna, The Voice of the Moon. It's his talking about the moon speaks to us and is giving us, and through these two crazy guys who can hear these voices, which is... Um, Roberto Benini and Paolo Villaggio, they play these characters. So in his last film, this was his way of telling the story, but he used two comical characters as lunatic that could he hear from the moon, the luna, and there get these messages. So usually I had played small roles in backdrops of his films, and this one I said, can I do something different? He said, yes. I want you to be a journalist and follow me in the production and make a film within the film. I said, great. I love it. And that's where you can go on to YouTube and you can Google. That's why my book is named Towards the Moon with Fellini, because the voice of the moon was the film. And then this documentary film within a film, it wasn't a documentary. It's really a film within a film. It's called Towards the Moon with Fellini. That you can go on YouTube. I don't know if have you seen it. I have, indeed, and we link to it in the show notes. But why I bring that up is, um, so I got to film like being now the journalist who sees and is a great observer to this. So that's what that little, that little docu-special film is. So, okay. So I think it's after we had finished and wrapped that all up, Federico calls me one day to his office, and he said, there's some people that want to meet you. Come to my office as quick as you can. So that's why I think it's after this film and not before the voice of the moon and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I walk into his office and there are five different people all in suits. I think two women, three men, all in suits and ties in their thirties and forties, very professional looking, not uh, vagabondish or, and so forth. So I sit down and they tell us in Italian, that they are sent here from Carlos Castaneda. And they said, uh, Carlos is going to be stepping down and we want you, Christina, and you, Federico, to just get up right now, leave everything, walk away, come with us. We're going to take you to the jungles and we're going to start, we're going to continue the cult of the Nagua, the Sears, and the Tonal. You're going to be the female and the male. New Sears, because Carlos and his troop 
are now have in there's their problems with them. So we're now continuing with this and we've picked you. And of course I said, well, you saw the film, you saw the graphic novel. I mean, we already by then had so much of the voice of the moon, the graphic novel, the, the newspaper articles, Andrea's book. So there was so much material out there. So I, I didn't know if these people for real. And uh, I said, you mean you want Federico to leave his wife, leave everything, disappear, me too, follow you people? No. Federico, first he said no. Are you kidding? No way. So he said no. He was done with these people. He wanted nothing to do with Castaneda or these people. And then I looked at them. I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going to just disappear. I didn't want to start a cult or join a cult or be a cult. You know, I, I wanted some normalcy. So that was my way of saying no. So I leave. And for one month, these people, they dressed in different clothings. They even incorporated other people. They followed me. They spied on me. They jump out in front of the bushes to come with us, come with us. I thought they were going to kidnap me. Federico, no way. He wanted nothing to do. And so for another two months on a daily basis, these people were stalking me in, in a very... Um, fearful way. And, you know, they didn't lay hands on me, but they kept on insisting. And then at one point I was walking the dog and my dog then, and this woman came up and she just acted like, and she was blonde lady and she wasn't in that room. And she said, Oh, hi, I know your name and I know your birthday. And I know this about you. And I said, Oh, did those characters send you? And she said, yes, but I'm your twin person. I'm your personal assistant. Whatever you want me to do, I'm here to serve you. And I said, go take a walk. So here I was like, but again, I don't think it was from the phone calls, the voices. They were just so enthralled themselves that we seemed like the next best new leaders. So that was us literally, Federico and I saying, no, thank you. But they didn't hound Federico like they hounded me because they really understood that I was the healer, the psychic, the intuit of this little clan. And they really wanted me to join them. And I just said no. It could have gone so badly. It doesn't seem dramatic to imagine they may have been plotting a kidnapping. You know, what extreme behavior. Exactly. It was. So that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to take a break from this. Now, mind you, in 2005, uh, there was one film crew from Italy who came. They supposedly had optioned the rights to Tulio's notes and the graphic novel. And they were going to do a film, but they were, they didn't have their act together. So I, and I, and I introduced them to people in Hollywood and I thought, okay, hey, listen, they, they, this could be my film crew. And we said, when they said, well, we're going to go with you, get in the car, and we're going to drive down to, we're going to retrace the trails. Everything you did, we want to do it again. And, and we're, this is going to be our um, location scouting with you. And this is all going to be in the film. So I said, all right, let's go. And we're going to take mushrooms when we get there. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I was like, kind of, at, you know, at first saying, oh, this will be interesting. I almost died with these people. I, um, so, you know, that was a crazy thing. And, um, we had, uh, we had gone from the mushrooms. You mean? Yes. You almost died from the drug. Well, all right. I'll say this to you. So when we got there and there was one woman in the three guy film crew and we took a hotel room or a motel, I stayed with the woman, the men stay shared a room. And then we were going to go out into the desert and walk. And then 
the one, the director said he's a shaman. He's been there many times. He totally believes in Castaneda and everything I've been involved. And he's been following my career and what I'm doing. And he's finally reached out to me and, and he showed me all the notes and the things. So he had done his homework, which made me believe. And I was at that time thinking, wow, I got a film crew. This is great. They, people believe that I have people who believe in this story. But when we were out in the desert, I mean, we went into three day. This is way further than I ever drove into the, the desert because I had gone to Tulum and they wanted to go deeper into the Sonora Desert because they heard of the shot. They believed in his shamanistic exploration that in this jungle, the um, we would receive great connections. We would find this great um, shaman who would connect with me and all this stuff. So I, I kind of went out of a novelty. So while we were, and I was sharing this room with this woman, the day that we were going to do our mushrooms, she saw that I had a tampon full out of my bag. And she said, oh, you're, you can't do mushrooms if you're on your period. I go, oh, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, guess what I learned? You cannot do mushrooms when you're on your menstrual because everyone by five, four or five hours later, they were all back to normal. I had, and this, we did this at noon. I didn't, I almost died because one of the people with us was a doctor. And while everyone else was, waking up and coming back, I went into such a deep place. My heart rate was out of control. My eyes were rolling back. I was trembling. They couldn't recitate me. And this went on till 10 o'clock at night. They thought I was going to die there. And I went somewhere. I do believe I crossed over in that time. And what I saw and what I experienced was so phenomenal. Just like in every crossing over, you follow the light, your skin is glowing, you transmute. I mean, there was so much, there was hundreds of people roaming the desert, all glowing, following this light. And this voice was following me, telling me to start saying my goodbyes to my family and friends in my mind and letting go. And then when they said, now you have to let go of your children, I was like, oh, no, wait, 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 wait. I don't I even, and I was just so ready going with this everything because it was very hypnotic wow. and very soothing. And I said, no, I don't want to leave my children. And then this voice, like almost like an angel that I couldn't see, but it was around me, he said, his masculine voice, he said, well, if you're not ready to go, listen for your name. And I stopped, because even though I felt this pull towards this light, and I was glowing, color, everyone was glowing, but they were like zombies all going to this light. And I stopped and listened. And I heard, Christina, Christina, Christina. And then also I opened my eyes, and there... I'm back in the desert. There are the four people, the five people around us, the film crew, splashing water in me, shaking me, slapping me, taking my pulse. And they, when I came to, they were like, oh, my God. You know, they had all come out of there four or five in the afternoon. They were done. And this is 10 o'clock at night. And they didn't know what to do with me. And that this was deep, deep in the heart. So, you know, I kind of woke up and I, it took me days to get back into my body. I felt so out of it, like a zombie. Like I had really gone some, I'll never forget this. That is also like the movie Impact where Jodie Foster is in those six minutes where they can't explain. It was very, it was so unique. I'll never forget that. But that was a moment of, again, when they said, don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> the hard way. Oh God. 
Um, so there you go. And that was the last time I'll ever do mushrooms again because that was too dangerous. That was too dangerous. And um, I am still apologizing to my daughters for being so foolish. Wow, that is so deep. It seems that sometimes in the spirit of Salvador Dali, who said, I don't do drugs, I am drugs, there can be a redundancy for some people where administering state-altering compounds adversely interacts with their existing sensitivities, almost as though the recipe fails. Perhaps yours was threefold. Your existing sensitivity added to your biological cycle, the beans being in your life for years. It sounds like a triptych of trouble. Have you had good trips on other occasions? Um, yes, I've had some, I don't want to necessarily call them good trips, but I've had, um, for example, there was one of the times I had in the beginning of this whole experience back in 1984, uh, 85, before I had moved to Italy, uh, someone gave me some mushrooms and I took them on my own. And one of the things I was going to do before I knew I was really moving to Rome, I had, um, I was going to buy an apartment and I had the money. I was ready to meet the bank. So before I even knew what was really going to happen, I, I had everything set up. All I had to do was go sign papers and I was by myself and I thought, Oh, let me have a couple of mushrooms. So I took them and Whoa, I was like, was not such a good experience. It was like, I was trapped in some kind of a checkerboard prisms where lights and colors are flashing so out of control I was a zombie and and I was now like okay I can't control my body this is very uncomfortable this is I want to get out of this it was like a, a maze of kaleidoscope colors bombarding me and I couldn't see straight it was not good but I heard this voice and um, the voice said don't get the apartment go to Rome don't get the apartment go to Rome. When I came out of that and it took hours and I was like, whoa, I don't want this. Boy, this mushroom was not such a good idea. I called up and I canceled the apartment. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to go to Rome. Wow. And then my life changed. So, and I was, I didn't, I, that was like such a clear message. Now, was it, was it you? Was it the voices? I don't know, but it was just like that voice that led me when on the second, on that later mushroom high with in 2005, I was, um, it said, you know, get ready to let go if, you know, and, um, and, and your life is like a movie. Your life is like a movie. You can see all the characters and all the people in your life. And, and I was, I, and I did, it was like, I had an overview of my life and it wasn't only until to my children, which is heart, total heart chakra that I knew I had to stay here. But, um, yeah, I, had only a, a, let's say out of the five times I did mushrooms, maybe one was interesting and the others were strange. And then of course the two of them were too much. So it's, it's, um, and I've met people that said, Oh, you want to do a, an ayahuasca journey and, and a guided ayahuasca journey. And I'm like, nah, I've seen enough. I want to be here right wow. now. I want to get things done. So I mean, it's, it sounds like you gave it the college try. Did it enough. I got my degree and I don't, I need to be aware now. Now, again, not doing drugs, you know, a glass of wine here on occasion, you know, if you, even that's a drug, 
but um, best not, you know, and I do like a glass of wine here and there, but, you know, where to this extent, but, um, yeah, I think clarity for me is the new high. My high is being crystal clear because I want to find the words. I want to use parts of my memory and my and my psychic emotion that gives me information. I don't want to be deluded or or swayed to something that, because if I wasn't already open, then I'd say maybe I need it. Because I'm so open that I get too much open, and then it's really not helping me. Mm. And and I don't want to call in the voices. I mean, wherever we are, I'll see them in the next life. I, I, they don't need to come visit me. If they have to, they're going to do it, whatever. I don't know. But um, it they were daunting. They were daunting, and um, it was overwhelming at times. And it wasn't like, oh, this happened once or twice. This went on for years, and to the point where I felt controlled and manipulated. But I, but they never hurt me. Um, I almost felt like they protected me. Like if somebody were to do something negative, something would happen to them, and then I would say, oh wow, I felt like that was a little bit of protection there. But I didn't want to push anything, any luck. I didn't want to do anything. And right now, telling the story, finding the connections to the artistic mind, that's to me interesting. That's where I want to go with this story. With If there's a message in this film that, or the book or what could be or in me recounting the story is that it is a, a direct connection to the esoteric mind, the artistic mind, the inspirational mind. Um, that's where I think this is meant to go. And that if you, that other dimensions are outside of time and outside of time looks back on this earth and sees how we're being very, you know, from eating animals to using drugs that are not beneficial, like methadone. There are some drugs that are absolutely, they're just mind controlling. They're, they don't like some drugs that help save a person's lives and so other drugs are just to, keep us hooked, like heroin, for example. Um, I haven't heard an experience where heroin has really saved or helped a person. Um, for example, you know, there are just some drugs that are meant to help a headache and other things that are meant to make you addicted. So you, you know, make poor choices versus good choices. I'm a, I want to make good choices so I can stay in the light, be an educator of information, inspire artistic people. I think that's my favorite high is if I do a reading or if I'm working with someone and I've inspired them to do something that they can capitulate in their own mind is uh, something worthy of their inspiration. That's, that's my Academy Award. I'm happy when I inspire, help improve things. And also get to the, to get to the, the nitty-gritty, the secrets, the, the inner lockings of the mind where we can make choices, better choices. For more information on Christina Engelhart and Federico Fellini, check the show notes. To my knowledge, artist Andy Goldsworthy is not an experiencer of contact with non-human entities. Or if he is, I haven't heard mention of it in the context of his work. However, I revisited his documentaries, Leaning Into the Wind and Rivers and Tides. I was struck by the feeling that his art often leaves me with the sensation it almost seems to have been created 
by non-human entities. To come across his works in their typically remote settings, it would be easy to assume that fey creatures had created the mosaics of colorful leaves, shining like tempered glass over wet stones. One would be forgiven for thinking that one of his massive wood weavings had been fashioned by a creative Bigfoot prodigy. His works can remind of crop circles and hint at the after-effects of craft landings. In Goldworthy's attunement with these environments, he enjoins with the animating presence of a place, in a way that perhaps was once more our collective baseline, but now feels extraordinary. Often he'll be in a relationship with a particular tree or place year over year, season after season. Maybe I'm just being retro-romantic. But also, perhaps the atrophy of intimacy with our places and plant beings is something fundamental we need to recover to become more whole. For more on Andy Goldsworthy, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and anomalous experience. For more information, check the show notes or go to theliminalmuse.com. In the Renaissance, patrons were protectors. Protectors of creators. In fact, the word patron comes from the Latin patronus, which is related to the word pater, or father. And if your dad was anything like mine, he was a Florentine banker. And florid Florence flowered in father's René Sanka. So much so that dandies, nobles, clergy, and confraternities arted to their hearts contento. Great as those René Sanka patroni were, they are but fecal impactions next to the patrons of this show. Your mafagan Medicis. So send a profusion of florins. Click the link in the show notes, amico.
I can 